Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Eleven, Jean of Navarre. It is lucky, Philip said to Jacques, as they proceeded on their way after the troop had ridden on that he did not think of asking us if we were Huguenots. I was expecting it myself, sir, Jacques said, and I was turning it over in my conscience how I could answer. There could be but one answer, Jacques, though no doubt it would have cost us our lives. I should not deny my faith, even to save my life, sir, if the question were put to me, are you a Huguenot? But I think that when four lives are at stake, it is lawful to take any opening there may be to get us out of it. But how would there have been an opening, Jacques? Well, sir, you see, if he had asked, Are you Huguenots? I think I could have said no with a clear conscience, seeing that you are an Englishman. Your religion may be like ours, but you are not a Huguenot. And although Pierre does not seem to me to have quite made up his mind as to what he is, assuredly I should not call him a Huguenot. So you see, sir, that is only two out of the four are Huguenots there would have been no lie to my saying no to that question. But if he had said, Are you Catholics? Then I must have answered no, seeing that none of us go to Mass. Hmm, it is a nice question, Philip said. But seeing that the Catholics never keep their oaths and their promises to what they call heretics, I think that one would be justified, not in telling a lie, for nothing can justify that, but in availing oneself of a loophole such as one would scorn to use to others. I should be sorry to have the question asked me, though seeing I am not myself a Huguenot, although I am fighting with them, I think that I could reply no, especially as it is not a question of my own life only, but one involving the whole cause of the Huguenots. If I were in your place, I don't know what I should do, but as you say that you could do it without your conscience pricking you, I certainly should not put pressure upon you to say yes. However, I hope you may never be asked the question and that we shall meet with no more interruptions until we get to Narok. There can be little doubt that at present the Catholics have received no orders to seize the Queen and her son at Narok, although they have orders to prevent her at all costs from going forward to Paris, except under escort, and are keeping a sharp lookout to prevent her from being joined by parties of Huguenots, who would render her force formidable. I should hope that by this time we are past the last of their bands. Those we met just now doubtless belong to the force gathered in Bazaar, and it is in the direction of the north, rather than the west, that the Catholics are most vigilant. If she succeeds in making her way through them, it will be well-nigh a miracle. Now that we are well past Baza, we will leave the road and make our way across the fields, for it is upon the roads that any watch there may be will be set. It was a long day's journey, and at eight o'clock in the evening they lay down in a wood ten miles from Narak, having walked fully fifty miles since crossing the river Siron. I am very glad, Monsieur Philip, that we were not here four hours earlier. Why, Pierre? Because, sir, in that case you would have insisted on pushing on to Narok so as to enter it before the gate is closed, and in that case I doubt whether with the best will I could have gone that far, and I am sure that Jacques and Roger could not have done so. No, indeed, Jacques said. I have done my last inch. For the last four hours I felt as if I were walking upon hot irons. So sore are my feet. And indeed, I could not have travelled at all if I had not taken your advice and gone barefoot. They had brought some wine and bread in a little village through which they had passed, 
and as soon as they had finished their supper they lay down to sleep. They were up next morning long before daybreak, and were at the gates of Narok before they opened. A group of countrymen were gathered there, and as soon as the drawbridge was lowered they entered the town with them. They observed that there were sentries all round the walls, and that a keen watch was kept. As Philip was aware, the majority of the inhabitants there were Huguenots, and the governor was a noble of Bien, and it was doubtless for this reason that the Queen of Navarre had halted here, as Narok was a strong town, and not to be taken without a regular siege. They had no difficulty in ascertaining where the queen was lodged. Early as it was, several Huguenot gentlemen, armed to the teeth, were gathered round the door. Philip, leaving his companions behind him, went up to the group, and addressing one of them, said, I am the bearer of a message for the queen. It is important. May I pray you, sir, to cause this ring to be conveyed to her? It is a token that she will recognize. The gentleman glanced at the ring. She may well do that, he said, seeing that it bears her own cognizance. The queen is already up, and I will cause it to be sent in to her at once. Two minutes later, another gentleman came out. Her majesty will at once see the messenger who has brought the ring, he said and Philip at once followed him into the house. He was conducted to a room where a lady was sitting, whom he recognized by the description he had read of her as the Queen of Navarre. Beside her stood a lad of fifteen. "'You come from the Admiral,' she said. "'Have you dispatches for me?' "'I have a paper sewn up in my boot, Your Majesty, but it was read over to me several times, in case either water or wear should render it illegible. "'He has reached La Rochelle safely,' As I heard three days since, the queen said, but with a small following. He and the prince had over five hundred with them when they rode in, your majesty, and parties were arriving hourly to swell his force. On the day I left, he was going out to attack Nyor, and that captured, he was going to move south. That was the message I was charged to deliver. You will find him either in Cognac or in the front of that town. That is good news indeed, the queen said for I should have had to make the wide detour to pass round the Charente, all the towns and bridges being held by our enemies. It will be difficult enough to cross the intervening rivers. Indeed, as the news that I had started hence would arrive long before I did myself, it would be hopeless to elude their vigilance, and I should have had to take a long bend to the east, and might well have been cut off before I could reach him. And who are you, sir, that the admiral should think fit to entrust so important a message to you? I am English-born, madame, and my name is Philip Fletcher. My mother was French, being the daughter of the Count de Mouly, and she sent me over to reside with her sister, the Countess of Laville, in order that I might fight for the cause of the religion by the side of my cousin Francois. I rode with him through the last campaign in the train of Francois de la Nouy, and having had the good fortune to attract the notice of the Prince of Condé and the Admiral, they selected me to bear this message to you, thinking that, being but a lad, I should better escape suspicion and question than a French gentleman would do, especially as he would risk being recognized, while my face would be altogether unknown. Now, if your majesty would permit me, I will open the lining of my shoe. You will find, however, that the, des that the dispatch contains but few words. At first the admiral thought only to give me a message, but he afterwards wrote what he had said, in order that should any evil befall me by the way, one of the three men who accompanied me should take my shoe and bring it to your majesty. By this time he had slid open the lining of his shoe with his knife and handed the little piece of paper to the queen. It contained only the words, All goes well. I am hoping to see you. 
you will find me in or near cognac there was no signature you have done good service to the cause monsieur fletcher the queen said how did you manage to pass south for i hear that every bridge and fort is guarded by the catholics philip gave a brief account of his journey you have acted prudently and well young sir and fully justified the admiral's confidence in your prudence what are your orders now they are simply to accompany your majesty on your way north if it be your pleasure to permit me to ride in your train i shall do that right willingly sir and it will be a pleasure for my son to hear from your lips a full account of your journey hither and something of your native land in which it may be that he will be some day compelled to take refuge you shall ride by my side monsieur philip the young prince said you look as if you could laugh and joke these huguenot lords are brave and faithful but they have ever serious faces hush henry it is not fitting to speak so they are brave and good men that may be mother but they weary me dreadfully and i am sure it would be much more cheerful having this english gentleman as my companion the young prince was tall for his age active and sinewy his mother had brought him up as if he had been a peasant boy as a child he had run about barefoot and as he grew had spent much of his time among the mountains sometimes with shepherds sometimes engaged in the chase jeanne herself had a horror of the corruption of the french court and strove to make her son hardy and robust with simple tastes and appetites and preferring exercise hard work and hunter's food to the life of the town he had practised constantly in arms and his mother regretted nothing so much as the fact that next to the king and his brother he stood in succession to the french throne and would have been far happier that he should rule some day over the simple and hardy people of navarre the first thing to do monsieur fletcher the queen said is to obtain more suitable garments for yourself and your followers this my chamberlain shall see about without delay i will then present you to the gentlemen who accompany me they are but a small party but we have received promises from many others who will join us on our way i may tell you it is already arranged that i shall set forward this evening monsieur d'escar has i hear some four thousand gentlemen under arms but these are widely scattered and i hope to have a sufficient force to overcome them at any point we may make for some friends have secretly collected two or three boats near tournay where there is but a small party of the catholics assembled once past the garonne we shall feel safe for a time would it please you that i should ride on first to tournay your majesty and ascertain that the garrison there are not alert and have no suspicion that you are about to cross so close to them being a stranger here i could pass unsuspected while were any of the gentlemen with you seen near tournay it would create suspicion that you yourself were about to cross in the neighbourhood i thank you for that offer the queen said and will speak to you about it later on as philip had been furnished with money he did not trouble the queen's chamberlain but at once purchased clothes for himself and his three followers together with breast and back pieces for jacques and roger on his return to the queen after an hour's absence he was informed that prince henri had made inquiries for him and was shown into a room where the young prince was sitting down to his breakfast the queen being engaged in business with some of her counsellors ah that is right monsieur fletcher i have been waiting breakfast for you half an hour come sit you down with me i warrant you have been too busy since you arrived at Narok to think of a meal i don't think prince philip began that it would be seemly that i nonsense the prince interrupted we are not at the court of france thank goodness 
and we have no ceremony at Bear. Besides, a simple gentleman may dine with the king any day. So sit down without any more delay, and let me hear all your adventures. Philip still hesitated, and the prince said, I told my mother that I was going to have you to breakfast with me, and I believe she was well satisfied that I should for a time be out of her way. This removed any doubt from Philip's mind, and he at once sat down with the prince and ate a hearty meal, after which he chatted with him for an hour, telling him about the journey from La Rochelle, the rescue of the Huguenots near Niort, and some of the adventures in the last war. And you were with my cousin Condé, and the admiral in the Battle of St. Denis? What luck you have had, Monsieur Fletcher! I hope that day will come when I too shall take part in war, and be a great leader like the admiral but I would rather that it was against Spaniards or others than against Frenchmen. The door opened, and the queen entered. Philip rose hastily, but she motioned him to be seated. No ceremony, I beg of you, Master Philip. I am glad to find you here with my son. I have spoken to some of my friends of your offer to go to Tournay, but they think not well of it. It is a small place, and a stranger would be sure to be questioned. But it was agreed that if you would ride through Alguay, you might do us great service. Five leagues from Tonnay, Fontaray, the seneschal of Armagnac, will be waiting for me in the morning with a troop of horse and a regiment of infantry. If the governor of Alguay has news of his coming, he may send out a force to attack him, or should he not feel strong enough for that, he may at least think that I am intending to join the seneschal, and in that case he may send out troops to bar the roads leading thither from the river. As many will be passing through Alguay on their way to join Descartes, the passage of a gentleman and two men-at-arms will excite no attention, and if you put up for a short time at an inn, you may be able to gather whether there has been any movement of the troops, or whether there is any talk of the departure of any this evening. Should all be quiet, you can join me on the road, or ride direct to the village of villeneuve d'Agnois, where the seneschal will arrive some time tonight. If you should hear of any movement of the troops, ride down on the other side of the river till within two miles of Tonnay. Then, if you place your men at intervals of three or four hundred yards apart, you will be sure to see us cross, and can give us warning of danger, and such indications as you may gather as to the points where the troops are likely to be posted. We shall cross about midnight. I will gladly undertake the mission, Philip said. I will go out and procure some horses at once. That is unnecessary, the queen said. We have brought several spare horses with us, and I have already ordered four to be saddled for you. You have no armor, I see. I would rather ride without it, your majesty, especially on such a mission as the present. Besides, if in full armor I might well be accosted and asked to whose party I belong, while riding in as I am unarmed, save for my sword, I should have the air of a gentleman of the neighborhood who had merely ridden in on business or to learn the latest news. The queen smiled approvingly. You see, Henry, this gentleman, although about to undertake a dangerous business, does not proceed rashly or hastily but thinks coolly as to the most prudent course to pursue. You will understand, Monsieur Fletcher, that several of the gentlemen with me have volunteered for this duty, and that we have accepted your offer solely because they could scarcely end our gay without meeting some who know them, while you, being a stranger, do not run this risk. Moreover, madam, I have another advantage. Were any of them questioned and asked directly, Are you a Huguenot? They could not but answer yes. Whereas, with that question put to me, I could reply no, seeing that I am an English Protestant, and in no way, save in my sympathies, a Huguenot. That is an advantage, certainly. But it may be the question will be put, are you a Catholic? In that case, your majesty, 
I could only reply no. But methinks the other question is the most likely one. I wish I were going to ride with Monsieur Fletcher, mother. That is impossible, Henry, for scarce a Gascon gentleman but has been down at one time or other to Bearn. Do not be anxious for adventures. They will come in time, my son, and plenty of them. Would that you could pass your life without one. But in these troubled times, and with France divided against itself, that is too much to hope. Should you by any chance, Monsieur Fletcher, fail to rejoin us at Villeneuve d'Agnois, you may overtake us further on. But run no risk to do so. You know whither we are bound, and I trust that when we arrive there we may find you before us. I myself will retain the ring that you brought me, and will return it to the admiral. But wear this in remembrance of one in whose service you risked your life. And she handed him a diamond ring, which he knew enough of gems to be aware was of considerable value. And take this dagger, the prince said, taking a small and beautifully tempered weapon from his belt. It is but a bodkin, but it is a famous steel. It was sent me by Philip of Spain at a time when he was trying to cajole my mother, and is one of the best workmanship of Toledo. Philip expressed his thanks to the gifts in suitable words, and then, taking leave of the queen and prince, went down to the courtyard. Here he found Pierre and the two men-at-arms standing at the head of three powerful horses, while one of the queen's retainers held a very handsome animal, in readiness for himself. "'Her Majesty begs you to accept these horses, sir.' as a slight token of her goodwill. In five minutes the party had issued from Nerac, Paris as usual keeping close behind Philip, and the two men-at-arms riding a few lengths behind. "'This is truly a change for the better, Monsieur Philip,' Paris said. "'We entered Nerac as tillers of the soil. We ride out in knightly fashion.' "'Yes, Paris, it is good to be on the back of a fine horse again, and this one I am riding is worthy of the place beside Victor and Robin.' Yes, he is as good as either of them, sir. I am not sure that he is not better. We, too, are well content with the Queen of Navarre's generosity, for our stewards gave us, before we started, each a purse of twenty crowns, which has been a wonderful salve to our sore feet. I trust there will be no more occasion to use them for a time. I hope not. It was a long journey, but it was fortunate that we pushed on as we did, for had we been twelve hours later, we should not have found the Queen at Narok. "'And why does not your honour stay to ride with her?' Pierre asked. "'I hope to rejoin her again to-night. "'We are going through Algay, "'where I hope to gather such news of the movements of the Catholic troops "'as may be of use to her.' "'Algay was about fifteen miles distance from Nerac, "'and as there was no occasion for haste, "'and Philip did not wish the horses to have the appearance of being ridden fast, "'they took three hours in traversing the distance. "'When they neared the town, he said to Pierre, "'I shall not take you with me.' If there should be trouble, though I do not see how this can well come about, four men could do no more than one. Therefore, Pierre, do you follow me no nearer than is sufficient to keep me in sight? The other two will follow you at an equal distance, together or separately. Should any accident befall me, you are on no account to ride up or meddle in the business. I told you what my instructions are, and it will be your duty to carry them out if I am taken. You will put up your horse, and mingling with the soldiers and townspeople, Find out if there is any movement in the wind, or whether any troops have already gone forward. Jacques and Roger will do the same, and you will meet and exchange news. If you find that anything has been done, or is going to be done, towards putting more guards on the river, or dispatching a force that might interfere with the passage of the Queen from Tonnay to Villeneuve d'Agnois, Roger and Jacques will ride to the point where I told you the crossing is to be made, and will warn the Queen of the danger. 
I leave you free to ride with them, or to stay in the town till you learn what has happened to me. If you should find that there is no movement of troops, you and the others will be free either to ride to Pontiers or to make your way back to Cognac, and to join my cousin and give him news of what has happened to me. If I am only held as a prisoner, the admiral will doubtless exchange a Catholic gentleman for me. He is sure to take many prisoners at the capture of the towns. He then called the two men-at-arms up, and repeated the instructions to them. But may we not strike in should you get into trouble, master? Roger and I would far rather share whatever may befall you. No, Jacqui, it would be worse in every way. Force could be of no avail, and it would lessen my chance of escape were you beside me. Single-handed I might get through and trust to the speed of my horse. If taken, I might plan some mode of escape. In either case, it would hamper me were you there. Above all, it is important that my mission should be fulfilled. Therefore, my commands on that head are strict. I do not apprehend troubles in any way. But if it should occur, you will at once turn your horses down the first street you come to, so that you may in no way be connected with me. Paris will, of course, turn first. You will follow him, see where he stables his horse. Then go on to some other cabaret, and having put up your horses, go back to the place where he has stopped. Wait till he joins you outside. Then arrange for the hour at which you are to meet again, and then go off in different directions to gather the news of which we are in search. Take no further thought about me at all. Give your whole minds to the safety of the Queen. Upon that depends greatly the issue of this war. Were she and her son to fall into the hands of the Catholics, it would be a fatal blow to the cause. So saying, he rode on again at the head of the party. When, within a quarter of a mile of the town, he again called Paris up to him. Paris, do you take this ring and dagger? Should I be taken, I shall assuredly be searched to see whether I am the bearer of dispatches. I should grieve to lose these gifts, as much as I should to fall into the hands of the Catholics. Keep them for me until you learn that there is no chance of my ever returning to claim them, and then give them to my cousin, and beg him in my name to return the ring to the Queen of Navarre and the dagger to the young prince. I like not all these provisions, Paris said to himself. Hitherto the master has never, since I first knew him, given any commands to me as to what was to be done in case he were captured or killed. It seems to me that the danger here is as nothing to the danger he has often run before, and he must have some sort of foreboding of evil. If I were not a Huguenot, I would vow a score of pounds of candles to be burnt at the shrine of the Holy Virgin if the master gets safe out of yonder town. Philip rode on across the bridge and entered the gates without question. Up to this time his followers had kept close behind him, but now, in accordance with his instructions, they dropped behind. He continued his way to the principal square, rode up to an inn, entered a courtyard, and gave his horse to the stableman. "'Give it a feed,' he said, "'and put it in the stable. I shall not require it until the afternoon.' Then he went into the public room, called for food and wine, and sat down. The tables were well-nigh full, for there were many strangers in the town. After a first glance at the newcomer, none paid him any attention. Puri and the two men had, in accordance with his instructions, passed the inn they had seen him enter, and put up at other places. There was a loud buzz of conversation, and Philip listened intently to that between four gentlemen who had just sat down at the table next to him. Three of them had come in together, and the fourth joined them just as Philip's meal was brought in. "'Well, have you heard any news at the governor's, Magnon?' one of them asked the last comer. "'Bad news.' Condé and the Admiral are not letting the grass grow under their feet. They have captured not only Niort, as we heard yesterday, but Parthenay. Pest! That is bad news indeed. What a blunder it was to let them slip through our fingers. 
when they might have seized them with two or three hundred men in Burgundy. It seems to me that they are making just the same mistake here, another put in. As Jean of Navarre is well nigh as dangerous as the Admiral himself, why don't they seize her and her cub and carry them to Paris? Because they hope that she will go willingly of her own accord, saint Amon. La Motte Fenelon has been negotiating with her for the last fortnight on behalf of the court. It is clearly far better that she should go there of her own will than that she should be taken there a prisoner. Her doing so would seem a desertion of the Huguenot cause, and would be a tremendous blow to them. On the other hand, if she were taken there as prisoner, it would drive many a Huguenot to take up arms who is now content to rest quiet. And moreover, the Protestant princes of Germany and Elizabeth of England would protest. For whatever the court may say of the admiral, they can hardly affirm that Jean of Navarre is thinking of making war against Charles for any other reason than the defense of her faith. Besides, she can do no harm at Nerac, and we can always lay hands on her when we like. At any rate, there is no fear of her getting farther north. The rivers are too well guarded for that. I don't know, another said, after the way in which Condé and the Admiral, though hampered with women and children, made their way across France, I should never be surprised at anything. You see, there is not a place where she has not friends. These pestilent Huguenots are everywhere. She will get warning of danger and guides across the country, peasants who know every byroad through the fields and every shallow in the rivers. It would be far better to make sure of her and her son by seizing them at Nerac. Besides, St. Armand said, there are reports of movements of Huguenots all over Guyenne, and I heard a rumor last night that the Seneschal of Armagnac has got a considerable gathering together. These Huguenots seem to spring out of the ground. Six weeks ago, no one believed that there was a corner of France where they could gather a hundred men together, and now they are everywhere in arms. I think, Magnon said, that you need not be uneasy about the Queen of Navarre. I am not at liberty to say what I have heard, but I fancy that before many hours she will be on her way to Paris, willingly or unwillingly. As for the Seneschal, he and the others will be hunted down as soon as this matter is settled. A day or two sooner or later will make no difference there, and until the Queen is taken, the troops will have to stay in their present stations. My only fear is that, seeing she can have no hope of making her way north, she will slip away back to Navarre again. Once there, she could not be taken without a deal of trouble. Whatever is to be done must be done promptly. Without direct orders from the court, no step can be taken in so important a matter. But the orders may arrive any hour, and I think you will see that there will be no loss of time in executing them. And Nerac could not stand a long siege, even if it were strongly garrisoned. And the handful of men she has got with her could not defend the walls for an hour. I hope she may not take the alarm too soon. For, as you say, once back in Navarre would be difficult indeed to take her. It is no joke hunting a bear among the mountains. And as her people are devoted to her, she could play hide-and-seek among the valleys and hills for weeks, high or months, before she could be laid hold of. It is well for our cause, Magnon, that she is not a man. She would be as formidable a foe as the admiral himself. Huguenot as she is, one can't help respecting her. Her husband was a poor creature beside her. He was ready to swallow any bait offered him, while even if it would seat her son on the throne of France, she would not stir a hand's breadth from what she thinks is right. Philip finished his meal and then went out into the square. The news was satisfactory. No order had yet arrived for the seizure of the queen and though one was evidently looked for to arrive in the course of a few hours, it would then be too late to take any steps until nightfall at the earliest, 
and by nine o'clock the queen would have left Nerac. No movement was intended at present against the seneschal, nor did the idea that the queen might attempt to join him seem to be entertained. It was possible, however, that such a suspicion might have occurred to the governor, and that some troops might secretly be sent off later. He must try to learn something more. Confident that he could not be suspected of being aught but what he was, a Catholic gentleman, for his garments were of much brighter hue than those affected by the Huguenots, he strolled quietly along, pausing and looking into shops when he happened to pass near groups of soldiers or gentlemen talking together. So he spent two or three hours. No word had reached his ear indicating that any of the speakers were anticipating a sudden call to horse. He saw that Pri was following him, keeping it some distance away, and pausing whenever he paused. He saw no signs of the other two men, and doubted not that they were, as he had ordered, spending their time in wine-shops frequented by the soldiers, and listening to their talk. Feeling convinced that no orders had been given for the assembly of any body of troops, he sat down for a time at a small table in front of one of the principal wine-shops, and called for a bottle of the best wine, thinking that the fact that he was alone would be less noticeable than if he continued to walk the streets. Presently a party of four or five gentlemen sat down at a table a short distance off. He did not particularly notice them at first, but presently glancing that way saw one of them looking hard at him, and a thrill of dismay ran through him as he recognized the gentleman addressed as Raoul, the leader of the party that had stopped him near Bazaar. He had, however, presence of mind enough to look indifferently at him, and then to continue sipping his wine. The possibility that this gentleman with his troop should have come to Agay had never entered his mind, and though the encounter was the most unfortunate one, he trusted that the complete change in his appearance would be sufficient to prevent his recognition, although it was evident by the gaze fixed on him that the gentleman had an idea that his face was familiar. To move now would heighten suspicion if any existed, and he therefore sat quiet, watching the people who passed in front of him, and revolving in his mind the best course to be taken should Raoul address him. The latter had just spoken to his cousin, who was sitting next to him. "'Do you know that young gentleman, Louis?' he asked. "'I seem to know his face well, and yet he does not know me, for he just now glanced at me without recognizing me. You know most of the gentry in this neighborhood. Do you know him?' "'No, I cannot say that I do, Raoul, though I too seem to have a recollection of his face. It is a sort of face one remembers, too. I should think his family must belong to the north, for you do not often see men of that complexion about here.' He looks very young, not above nineteen or twenty, but there is a look of earnestness and resolution about his face that would point to his being some years older. Dismissing the matter from his mind, Raoul joined in the conversation round him. Presently he grasped his cousin's arm. I know now where we saw the face, Louis. He was one of the four fellows we stopped two days since near Bazaar. Impossible, Raoul. Those men were peasants, though two of them had served for some time in the army. The others... And he stopped. You see it yourself, Louis. One of the others was a dark, active man. The other was but a lad, a tall, well-built young fellow with fair complexion and gray eyes. I thought of it afterwards, and wondered where he had got that skin and hair from. I put it down that it was a trace of English blood, of which there was a good deal left in Guyenne, and some of the other provinces they held long ago. I certainly see the likeness now you mention it, Raoul. But it can hardly be the same. This is a gentleman— he is certainly that, whoever he may be. How could a gentleman be masquerading about as a peasant? That is what I am going to find out, Louis. He may have been a Huguenot, making his way down to join the Queen of Narac. He may be one of her train there, who has gone out in disguise to reconnoitre the country and see what forces of ours were in the neighbourhood, and where are posted. That may be his mission here, but this time he has chosen to come in his proper attire. That can hardly be his attire if he was one of Jean of Navarre's followers. He may have got a suit for the purpose— 
but assuredly the colors are too gay for a Huguenot in her train. For my part, I see nothing suspicious about his appearance. There, he is paying his reckoning and going. And I am going after him, Raoul said. There is something strange about the affair, and there may be some plot. Do you come with me, Louis? Monsieur d'Estaing, I have a little matter of business on hand. Will you come with me? End of chapter 11 Recorded August 2008